I want to share something that the Lord has put on my heart for us as a church that I want us to be faithful in over this next year. And specifically, that's the opportunity to pray for other churches and ministries in our area who are uh, sharing the gospel faithfully, just as we are trying to do week after week. And so one of those I want to start with is really our nearest neighbor down the street, the folks at Redeemer Church. We'll put a picture up there of, of Dusty and his staff. Do you all have that? Yeah. So that's Dusty down there in the middle. Dusty is one of the several pastors that I pray with regularly. He is a good friend and a godly man, and I have so much love and respect for him. Um, and so the next picture is some of his uh, staff team. And so I called Dusty this past week, and I said, hey, listen, how can we be praying for you as a church? And he gave me a couple of things that I want to share with you and, and pray for together. The first one is to <clears throat> minister to the people who are present, um, because he's not, he's, he's not any different than any pastor post-COVID. <laughs> you don't know who's coming, who's going, who's staying, who's waiting. It, it, you just don't know. And so he says, you know, I don't want us to worry about the church that we were or the church that we want to be. I want us to be the church that we are and be present with the people who are here. I think that's a beautiful prayer. The second thing he says, just pray for our staff that we would be faithful in making disciples, that we'd be unified together as a team and so I want to pray for them this morning. But also, if you will, in the front of the pews there, you have notes of encouragement cards. Would you grab one of those, please? Uh, everybody grab one. It just says notes of encouragement. Here's what I would like for you to do. At some point during the service, you can even do it when I'm preaching because I think you're taking notes and it'll make me feel good. <laughs> um, but I want you to just jot down a note of encouragement. And just leave it in the pew. And we're going to collect these after church and share these with our friends down the street and just let them know that we love them, that we're praying for them, and we're thankful for them. So let me uh, take the opportunity to pray for our friends. Uh, Father, I am so thankful for Dusty and his friendship. And just we've been through some hard stuff together. And I am grateful that he has been faithful um, for many years now. And so I pray for him and his staff team that they would be unified, that they'd be devoted to making disciples, and that they would minister to the people who are present with them in this moment. That they would connect with them, that they would love them and know them. And Lord, that through that, that, that they would see the impact of that gospel truth being lived out every day in this community through where people live, for where people work, for where people play, and that the good news of Jesus would spread throughout this community as, it, as you work into the lives of those who are there at Redeemer. Would you bless them and encourage them? Lord, we love you and we thank you and we thank you for our friends who are faithful to serve you at Redeemer. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, last week in just three verses, okay? Three verses, think about that. The author helped us understand the supremacy of Christ as the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things, and the ruler of all things. He, he's working hard to help us see that Jesus is more than we could ask or imagine. And this morning, he's going to continue that by arguing how Jesus is greater than the angels. 
Now, let's be honest, when we first hear that, it seems kind of odd, right? Why, why would that argument be necessary? Well, at some level, I think we can all relate because there's always been a fascination with angelic beings, okay? I don't, I don't know about you, but when I was in college, I read a book uh, entitled This Present Darkness. Anybody ever read that? Okay. It, for, it was captivating for me, all right? It was this story of this unseen battle between angels of darkness and angels of light. And it was a, a fictional account, but it was absolutely captivating. But I think angels have always piqued our interests, and, and, and they actually have an appearance in most every world religion, including Christianity. It might surprise you to know that angels are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, and another 160 times in the New Testament. These mysterious creatures captivate our imagination. Now, the word for angel, interestingly, is the same in both Hebrew and Greek. It means messenger. Scripture tells us that these are supernatural beings created to, to serve God and to support mankind as He intends. They have direct access into God's presence, and they are divinely ordained with great power and great authority. But still, why is it important for the author, the, the writer of Hebrews, to establish that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, to begin with, I want you to remember the audience that he's speaking to. These are Jewish Christians. And we know that they are under great persecution and at risk of abandoning their faith. They're tempted to ease back into the protection of the Jewish traditions, looking for acceptance within that Jewish community, and in being a part of that Jewish community, escaping persecution by finding protection under Roman law as the Jews were accustomed to. And so one of the possible ways to gain acceptance is to claim that Jesus was an angel, a supernatural being with great power and authority, which would explain the miracles and the message from God. They could still hold to the experience of having a divine encounter, but they could avoid the criticism of claiming Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, privately, they may still hold to their faith in Christ alone, but publicly, they would deny that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we hear that, I want us to understand how much that relates to us in our world today. Because we live in a world that says there are lots of ways to get to heaven. And it can be offensive to suggest that Jesus is the only way. In fact, it, it, it seems arrogant to suggest at all that there's only one right way. We know in our culture today, we just don't tolerate absolute authority, right? So how arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way. I mean, shouldn't we just kind of keep our faith a private matter and recognize that other uh, beliefs are equally valid too? You see the temptation? It's really no different for us. But the claims of the Bible are clear. Salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men 
by which we can be saved. Jesus is superior to the angels in every possible way. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open up your word. Would you give us eyes to see your truth? We recognize that these are words that you breathed out. These come from you through your prophets and through your teachers to the hearts of your people. And you intend to stir within us an understanding of who you are, who we are as it relates to you and the hope of the gospel of being reconciled in that relationship and the hope of eternal life. So Lord, give us some more clarity this morning as we peek into your word and understand the truths of your scripture, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, before we get started, um, if you have an NASB Bible, you'll notice that basically from about verse 5 until 14, really, it's all capitals, okay? And the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, does that because whenever there's a quotation from the Old Testament, it puts it in capitals so you'll write when they're writing in all caps, okay? <laughs> it's the way the NASB does it. All right, so let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to start there, even though it overlaps with where we left off last week. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, and he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. We're going to pause there because the author begins by showing us how Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a superior name. Now from a Jewish perspective, there's a lot that's built into a name, especially when it comes to the promised Messiah. Because the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so that tells us that, that he's going to have a royal name. When the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary about Jesus, that's what he was telling her. In fact, Luke chapter 1 verse 32 says, as the angel speaks, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. All these things come from the promised inheritance of his name. And so the writer takes that idea and compares it to the importance of angels when he says, and to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. It's a rhetorical question because that never happened and it never will. The title of God's Son is reserved for the promised Messiah. This is the idea behind Psalm 2 that he quotes from, which happens to be a messianic psalm. We actually looked at it last week when we talked about the Lord's anointed and how it pointed to the promised Messiah when it said that God will give him the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. 
Because remember, Jesus is the heir of all things. And he has absolute authority. And that has never been true of an angel. Now, to be fair, the Bible does call angels from time to time sons of God. But listen, it always does so collectively and never individually. In fact, we are called sons of God as we've been adopted into the family of God by faith. But Jesus is unique because he is the only begotten son of the Father. That word begotten means to bring forth or to appoint. It's really a a legal term that emphasizes the special rights of a son given to him by his father. I think it's the idea that Paul has in mind when he writes to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed or begotten the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection reveals the divine authority of Christ, demonstrating his power over sin and death. And this this title of God's Son is reserved for only one person, the one uniquely related to God in the way that, that angels are not. It's the idea behind the second quotation in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, when it says, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. If you go back to that passage in uh, Samuel uh, chapter 7, that's where you find the Davidic covenant. That's a quote right out of that promise given to David that in his lineage there would be one whose kingdom would have no end. The author wants us to see that the one and only son is the one and only Messiah uniquely related to God in a way that that angels are not. His name is superior because his relationship is unique. We'll see that continue in verse 6. Read that with me. It says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here the author is going to shift now from a superior name to the superior worship of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is the creator of all things, right? We established that last week. We also know that angels are created beings. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus created angels. And the creation is intended to worship their creator, The author affirms this by quoting Psalm 97 and Psalm 104. He affirms that God commands the angels to worship Jesus. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures of that is found in Revelation chapter 5. Just just picture this scene in your mind as I read it to you. It says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with one loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is Jesus to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
The angels worship Jesus because he alone is worthy of their praise. He alone is worthy of their service. They are his messengers, his ministers to those that he saves. They exist to do the will of their creator. In fact, even during Jesus' own ministry, they, they ministered directly to him. You'll remember that when Jesus was tempted in the desert, right? And after that, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, Jesus, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Jesus doesn't serve the angels. The angels serve Jesus. They worship him because he is superior to them in every way possible. He is highly exalted, and, and he is seated on a heavenly throne. We see that beginning in verse 8. Look at that with me. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Once again, the author is highlighting by, by quoting these Old Testament verses how God's word speaks to the identity of God's son. And you'll notice in verse 8, he's identified as God, right? It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God's son, the promised Messiah, is God incarnate. And he rules from an eternal throne. We see that when he quotes from Psalm 45, a psalm that was written originally to celebrate the wedding of King David. But the author of Hebrews is looking past the reign of King David into the rule of the promised Messiah, the one whose kingdom will have no end, and who is seated on his throne. The psalmist says that he, he holds a righteous scepter, and that scepter symbolizes his authority. In fact, if you look back at ancient kings, you'll find that, that their scepter always had great meaning, right? A scepter is like a, an ornate staff that was crowned with some kind of ornament that was symbolic. For example, King Edward III had a scepter that was crowned with a lion, representing the strength of his rule. If you look at King Richard, his was crowned with a dove, representing the peace of his rule. And I just wonder if the scepter of Jesus is crowned with a cross, symbolizing his sacrifice for our sins, because that's how the kingdom of righteousness was established. We see that in 1 Peter 3.18. It says, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus rules in righteousness over a kingdom of righteousness because of what was accomplished on the cross. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He reigns supreme over the angels. The nations are his inheritance. 
and the ends of the earth His possession. He is the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things, and the ruler of all things. Look at verse 10. It says, And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all be old like a garment, and, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they, they will also be changed. But you, you're the same, and your years will not come to an end. Here the, day, the, the author's quoting right out of Psalm 102. And I understand, as we read these verses, sometimes it can be challenging to follow as, as the author's tacking one Old Testament verse followed by another Old Testament verse followed by another Old Testament verse. But there's a reason he's doing that. He wants us to understand that this is not an argument based on his opinion. This is an argument based on the truth of God's Word. He's using Scripture as his authority. In this psalm, the author is, is in the beginning, he was pouring out his complaint before God. He begins by describing how, how bad his situation is. But, but as he works through his struggle, he, he begins to recognize how good God is. While admitting his own limitations, he acknowledges God's unlimited power. If you look at that psalm, he talks about how his days are short and his strength is weak. But God is eternal and his power is infinite. The, the writer of Hebrews takes this truth and then, then in, and applies it to the work of Jesus Christ. He is the sustainer and creator of all things, including us. Now, we have our limitations, but he does not. Everything will perish, but, but he will remain. We are fickle. We are unsteady, but he is eternally secure. The writer of Hebrews wants us to, to see this comparison. Look how he continues in verse 13. He says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here he's quoting from Psalm 110. And this is interesting because it's a psalm that Jesus actually refers to in his ministry as well. We see that in Mark chapter 12, verse 35. Listen what it says. It says, And Jesus began to say, as he taught them in the temple, He says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath, or put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? See, Jesus is actually making the exact same point as the writer of Hebrews. Because the Jews looked at the, the promised Messiah as a descendant of David, which is true. But here King David is calling him Lord, which means that, that the Messiah is a son who will be worshipped as God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, that's Jesus. He's the one. 
He is the Son seated at the right hand of God. He is God incarnate, the promised Messiah, the one who comes to bring redemption to the world. The angels render service on behalf of the Son. They minister to those who inherit salvation. They minister to those He saved. They they minister to us. That's you and I. Moment by moment they are working. But hear this. The work of Jesus is done. It's finished. It was complete at the cross. He is exalted above the angels. He receives their highest praise. He rules and reigns at the right hand of God with unchallenged authority and power. Now, I I said in the beginning that I, I know it's difficult to follow the Old Testament passages as they are repeated one after the other, but I don't want us to miss the point of what they represent. And hear this. They tell us that our God speaks. They tell us that our God speaks. That, that His truth is not hidden, but it has been revealed in His Word. And apart from that revelation, we would not know who God is, And we would not understand his plan of redemption. But not only did he give us his word, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. We just looked at that earlier, right? He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. So all that can be known about God is seen in the life of Jesus Christ. There's no new revelation needed because it is complete in Jesus Christ. Love what John Calvin once said. He said, the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. He goes on and says, whoever turns aside from this object, speaking of Christ, even though he wears himself out all his life learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. Everything points to Jesus. He has no rival, he has no equal, and his name is above every name. Now, we know that's true in the heavenly realm. The the writer of Hebrews has made that very clear, hasn't he? But here's my question. Is that true in the throne of your heart? Are there rivals for that throne in your heart that belongs to Jesus alone? And let's be honest, it's easy to be ruled by lesser things in this life, isn't it? Becoming distracted by what is temporary instead of being fixed on what is eternal. We need to be honest with ourselves and, 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 and speak out loud and confess the fact that when we give in to temptation, we are choosing another lover. See, when we give in to pornography, we say, I want this and not you. When we give in to financial security, we say, I want this and not you. Every time we give in to temptation, we're choosing another lover. But there's only one true lover of our souls. And he longs to guide and direct our lives. And so I want to encourage you to take some time this week and examine your heart. Ask yourself, 
Do I have any substitutes that distract me and and draw my affections away from Christ? Here's some things you might consider in terms of that, uh, that question. Number one, when you're lonely and discouraged, where do you look for love and acceptance? When you're lonely or discouraged, where do you look for love and acceptance? Uh, Number two, when you're fearful and anxious, where do you find peace and security? When you're fearful and anxious, where do you find peace and security? And then finally, when you face trials and tribulations, what fills your heart with hope and joy? When you face trials and tribulations, what fills your heart with hope and joy? Let me just tell you right up front, if the answer to any of those questions is anything other than Jesus, you're ruled by lesser things. But here's the good news of the gospel. Repentance always leads to reconciliation. Repentance always leads to reconciliation. I know sometimes you have to be careful when you say always that you really mean always, and I want you to know I really mean always. Repentance always leads to reconciliation. Confession always leads to forgiveness. This is the hope of the gospel. So my encouragement to you as you reflect on these things and as there's conviction in your heart that you run to Jesus, that you rest in him, that you join with the angels and worship him. He alone is worthy. Not only to be on the throne in heaven, but also in the throne in our own hearts. That he might rule and reign for the praise and glory of his name. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I I guess I want to begin with asking for forgiveness because I too am ruled by lesser things. When I allow something in my life to become a greater affection than you, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a really good thing. But there's something better when we turn our hearts towards you. So may we not let something good overrule what is great what is right, what is true. So Father, as we sing together, may we join with the angels in giving you the the worship that you deserve. And may it not end when we finish the song, but may it continue in the lives that we live Monday through Saturday until we do it again next Sunday. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. No rival, no equal, a name above all names. But I love what Brian reminded us of earlier, that that God who is majestic and holy and beautiful and wonderful and powerful, man, he loves you. He loves you. And he draws near to you and he invites you to draw near to him, to be loved by him, to know him. Remember what I told you earlier, and please don't forget this. The the power of the gospel says that repentance always leads to reconciliation. That confession always leads to forgiveness. That he alone is our rock and our salvation, and in him we will not be greatly shaken. That's our God. So let's live lives that give glory and praise to him. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Lord, as we...
leave this morning, may we do so with hearts filled with worship, and may that then pour out into lives filled with worship. Lives that give glory to you because of the goodness of who you are and how you have rescued a wretch like me. And Lord, may I, may we take this message of hope and faith and trust in you to the world around us, wherever we live, work, and play. May we love like you love. May we forgive like you forgive. Lord, thank you for who you are. What a beautiful name. We pray this in that name. Amen. Have a great day.